0: name is Jim Stitzinger. He's a Californian who spent the last 14 years serving in churches around America before coming home to Santa Clarita. He's married. They've been married for 20 years. His, his wife's name is Skye. They have three daughters, twins that just graduated high school. I think Macy is here today. Today, uh, Macy and Jesse, and they have a 16-year-old, Clancy Clare, who is heading into the 11th grade. He is the go-pastor at Crossroads. The go-pastor, I know that's a unique name, it focuses on all outreach ministries of the church. I'd like to thank Crossroads and Grace Baptist and... Other churches, Placerita, who have shown us mutual love and you know, importance that it means to work as a team in a valley when you're having without a pastor. So my heart goes to Crossroads and other churches. Let us give a warm applause to Jim as he preaches God's word.
1: Well, thank you. It is a joy to be with you. Uh, What a great church this is. I have loved this church. I've not had the opportunity to be here very much because we had moved out of state. But some of you might remember C.W. Smith. Okay, all right. Well, I was in his preaching class in 1998 at the Master's College back then. And we had to do our, our last sermon had to be here. And we had to preach here on a Sunday night and organize the whole service. Some of you may remember that. I don't know if that's still being done or or when that uh, may have dropped off, but that was uh, my last time I got to be in this room. So last century. So that was uh, <laughs> a lot of fun. Great memories, many, many friends over the years who've been part of this church and just love it. As was said, uh, you know, I'm a Santa Cruz kid, grew up here, and then God took us after I finished up at Master's Seminary and I worked at Grace Community for a while as the local outreach pastor God took us around the country to plant a church in Florida and then to work for eight years at Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. So Louisville, Kentucky really got in our hearts, so I'm a a mix between Kentucky and California. How you bring those together, you're about to find out, so, but... uh, we get, were given the invitation to come back to Santa Clarita and to serve as the Go Pastor at Crossroads. And as was said, Go Pastor, no one's heard that title. It's outreach, it's everything mobilization. Help people serve in our community, in evangelistic ministries, helping people get to the mission field, and helping to plant churches. And so our heart's desire was to be back in the front lines of gospel ministry. And you would not believe how cheap it is to rent a truck coming west. <laughs> So, we love it. We're thrilled. God was very kind to bring us here and get to be a part of this. I did also want to just tell you, I know you're in a a tough, long challenge as you seek out God's man to be the leader and the pastor of the church here and the shepherd. And so, uh, you said it was two years that you're in this search, and I just wanted to tell you, I've I've been in that work for many years helping churches find pastors, I can tell you it's better to take three years to find God's pastor for this church than to spend the next three years regretting a bad decision. Um, the, The collateral damage that takes, that brings onto a church from having made a fast bad hire is just devastating. So even if it takes a little bit longer than you expected and the fatigue sets in and the weariness and people drift off, don't let that discourage you. Uh, Sometimes people are going to drift to other churches for different reasons. Maybe they need health or they need something different for a season. But when when God brings this back together in a strong way, the the work of this church is only yet beginning. You have a wonderful history, a tremendous reputation in town, and it's only a matter of time until it all comes back together. So don't be discouraged. Just endure with it and watch what God does, and you'll be part of telling an amazing story down the road. Okay? So be encouraged. All right. Well, take your Bible and turn to Hebrews chapter 13. We're going to look at two verses this morning. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 and 6. It says this. Be sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So that we confidently say, The Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? We're going to look at these two verses this morning as we seek to understand this promise from God, a promise that he says one thing that he will never, ever do. Promises are all around us. We find promises made to us in marketing and in different business contexts, and they fill us with a certain anticipation, an expectation, a hope of happiness. They they energize us. We thrive on promises. New diets come along that promise exceptional weight loss. New bed promises rejuvenating sleep. A new car promises a serene commute. You don't even have to touch the wheel. (laughs) New clothes promise unmatched confidence, and on it goes. Promises of better health, a happier family, a better detergent, more effective pesticide. Even at the heart of marriage is a promise of two people covenanting together Before God, to love one another till death do they part. Promises are interwoven into all of life. Even our job is a promise this much work for this much money. We find hope in those things. We find hope that people will deliver what they've promised. But almost everything in this world is an empty promise. The diet only lightens our wallet, the new car comes with higher insurance premiums you didn't expect. New clothes wear out faster, and there's never enough month left at the end of the paycheck. The value of the promise is in the character and the capacity of the one who makes it. The value of a promise, what makes it worthwhile, what makes it trustworthy, is in the character and the capacity of the one who makes it. That's true in human relationships. When you don't trust someone's character and you don't trust their ability to deliver, then their promise doesn't mean a whole lot. Doubt creeps in and soon that relationship starts to dissipate. But this passage gives us a promise from God that is tied directly to his character, to who he is. It's written about 40 years after Jesus walked on the earth. As the growing Christian community, those followers of Christ began to grow. It's primarily a Jewish audience to which the book is written. That's why it's called Hebrews. And you get to the final chapter, chapter 13, where their final thoughts are being written and instructions being given. Verse 1 tells us how to love each other, keep enjoying being together, enjoy that fellowship. Verse 2 tells us to love strangers, show hospitality, because some might have entertained angels without knowing it. Verse 3 talks about loving prisoners and remembering our brothers in Christ and sisters in Christ who are held captive. Verse 4 tells you to love your spouse, to protect your marriage, because God is the judge of that. And then verse 5 introduces us to a promise that starts with a statement about money. And this is where we dig in. He says, there's four things to love in verses 1 to 4, and then one thing not to love, and that's money. He says, be sure your character is free from the love of money. Our author here is saying that, that you've got to check yourself to make sure that money does not control your attitude. It's so easy to spot this in our own life, isn't it? That when the paycheck comes, that's the happiest day of the month. And as the days then go, it becomes less and less happy. And the stress and the struggle for for life starts to take over. It's easy to spot it in our life. No matter how little we have or how much we have, the author here is saying, don't fall in love with the money. Don't let it control your attitude. Don't get attached to it. Affection for money will never translate into joy in life. Loving money only becomes an anchor on our soul, pulling us into a deeper pit of despair. He's not saying to have a cavalier or a reckless attitude towards it. What he's saying is to guard your heart so that your character is immune to the effects of wealth or poverty. My attitude operates independently from my savings account. You say, why do we battle with this? Why is this such a struggle for us? It's because there's a mirage of happiness that we believe is on the other side of having something. And you don't need to look any more than your own childhood to see the example of that. I mean, how many times did you serve a kid ice cream and their answer was, no thanks, I'm good. (laughs) I mean, this was operative in my own house last night. My nieces and nephew were over. The kids ran to the store to grab grab ice cream. They come back with three types of ice cream. By the end of the night, there's like a quarter left in each one, each container. Why? Why? because those kids just devour you. You say, do you want more? And the answer is, of course, I want more. But A.W. Pink said this. He said, covetousness is rooted in the fear of need while discontentment generally arises from a suspicion that our present portion will prove to be inadequate for the supply of our needs. You see how mental this is? We think that what we have is not gonna be enough. So we just want more, we want more, we want more. And the sparks of discontentment then are fanned into a fire of anger because we don't get what we want. That fuels covetousness, ignites jealousy, which then leads way to malice, all because we want something more. And so the author begins by telling us, be content with what you have. Look at verse five, let your character be free from the love of money. Your attitude should never change based upon the money that you have. But he says, be content with what you have. He's not diminishing a solid work ethic, not preventing us from striving after a goal and achieving it and having a nice item on this earth. He's not locking us into a vow of poverty as if that was somehow the right attribute to have. He's saying your attitude doesn't float on the tide of your possessions or your paycheck. What you get doesn't determine your joy. Keep the same humble, holy, joyful, loving character no matter what we gain or we lose. He says that he does, we don't have, we've got to get above the inventory and decide to be content with what we have. You want to see a little test on this? Think about these two examples and watch how your life changes when everything goes away. The rich young ruler in Luke, remember how he came to Christ at night and said, what do I need to do to get this eternal life? He was asking what the price tag was. And Jesus responded to him saying, sell all you possess and give it to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And how did the rich man respond in Luke chapter 8? He departed because he was sad. He couldn't get it. He realized the price tag was more than he could afford. More than he wanted to spend. He wasn't willing to give up everything. And so he left not only without eternal life, but without any measure of happiness that was in his face to begin with. Contrast that to Job, extremely wealthy, probably the most wealthy person on earth. In one hour, reports came into him that all of his cattle had been stolen, his crops destroyed, almost all of his servants had been slaughtered, and then on top of it, his children are all killed. And Job's response in the devastation of that moment was to say, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. There's a man whose character is free from the love of money. Because he can look at all the possessions of this world and say, they don't determine my godliness. My life is not equated to them. Listen to what Jesus says then in Luke 12 verse 15. He says, beware and be on guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of possessions. Even when you have abundance, does your life consist of a possess- of possessions? I remember as a, a ninth grader, I guess I was. Uh, uh, we were in our house in Pennsylvania before we moved out here, and uh, there's a someone pounding on the doors Easter the Saturday between Good Friday and Easter Sunday, and early in the morning. Someone's pounding on the door, and I go to open the door. I think I was about nine or ten years old at the time, and. I can't remember if I opened the door or if they kicked it in, but all I remember was these, these three guys come running in, and they grab myself and my brother and my sister and my mom, and they pull us outside. And, you know, I didn't know what this was. This, the term home invasion hadn't even been around. Like We kind of lived out in a little bit of a rural setting. It wasn't until these guys drug us outside that we looked back and saw the whole top half of our house was on fire. I mean, they saved our life. They had no, there was no reason why they should be in that part of town and that part of the, that area But they were driving by, saw smoke, and pulled us out and saved our lives. And you stand there and you watch your house burn. And when you're my age, it's just G.I. Joe and your knife collection, your baseball cards. You know, critically important stuff, you know. (laughs) And you realize how quickly possessions evaporate. And then you come to California where your house falls down in an earthquake. And you're like, what gives? This is incredible. But you realize how much our life gets based upon these things that so quickly melt rust, rot, get stolen, and they're gone. And what the author of Hebrews is saying here is, set your mind on Christ. Put your focus on Christ. You don't need to have your thoughts on this world. In fact, Colossians 3, 2 says, set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. Listen to what R.C. Sproul said. He said, even if the budget is never balanced, even if the stock market crashes, even if food prices skyrocket, even if my child never recovers from her illness, even if I lose my job, even if we lose our home, yet I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. You say, why should we have a character that's free from the love of money? Why should we have a life that's free from the love of the stuff of this earth? Why should we have a life that's filled with joy even when we lose and we lose and we lose? Why? Because of what the verse says. Look back at it. Verse five. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. This is where we get into the heart of this passage. And I want us to see four things. We're going to first see God's presence, God's provision, God's permanence, and then lastly, God's protection. First, God's presence. God's presence. Understand who's speaking, who's who's giving this verse. This is the creator. This is the human inventor. This is the person that made us, designed us, ordained us, gave us life, breathed life into us. It's he himself who's giving us this promise. The promise is tied to the character of the person making it. And this is God making a promise to us. It's backed by his power, who he is. This promise first shows up when Moses heard it. He's about to die at the end of Deuteronomy. And God says to Moses, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or tremble at them. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you, he will not fail you or forsake you. And then just a little later, God speaks to young Joshua in Joshua 1.5 and says, No man is able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. Again, God makes the same promise. The same God who spoke to Moses, who spoke to Joshua, then speaks to us and gives us a promise. It's not one that he is subject to change or abandon. In fact, Hebrews chapter 6, if you look back at Hebrews six eighteen, it says, It's impossible for God to lie. We who take refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as the anchor of our soul. What tethers our soul to the rock of ages is the fact that we have a God who doesn't lie. He doesn't make a statement flippantly and then find no time to fulfill it it's tied to his holiness, his sovereignty, his rule over everything. And when he speaks, he's giving us a statement that is the true it's the truth. It's a promise that brings to us an enduring power in any circumstance. We get God. We get his presence. It's not the only time he talks about this. Listen to Psalms 23, verse four. Even though I walk through the valley, of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. Why? For you're with me. God promises that his presence is with us. When he says, I am doing this, he says, I'm with you. Listen to Psalm 139. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in the earth, if I go down to the depths of the earth, you're there. If I take the wings of the dawn, do you know what that statement means? Wings of the dawn? We get this in Santa Clarita. Wings of the dawn is when the sunlight crests the mountain over here and rockets across the valley and smashes against the mountain over there. That's biblical language if I could move at light speed. If I could get on the leading edge of light and go all the way across the universe to where it it goes, you're still there. I can't outrun you, God. So he said, if I go up into heaven, you're there. If I go into the earth, you're there. If I go take the wings of the dawn, if I move at light speed, you're there. If I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, you're there. Even there, your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. We always have his presence with us. Even at the end of the Great Commission, where we are told to go into all the world and bring the gospel and call people to repentance and make disciples and baptize them, Jesus ends that command with this statement, I am always with you, even until the end of the age. Matthew twenty-eight twenty. We get his presence. We get him with us. Not only that, but second, we get his provision. Because if you get God, his presence, then you get everything that comes with him. Everything that comes with him. You can't separate who he is from what he does. When he says, I am with you, he's promising to bring the full storehouses of his grace to bear on our lives. Grace to endure. Grace to suffer loss. Grace to love others. Grace to sacrifice. Grace to forgive. This is what we get. We get God. And with that comes all the security and assurance that he brings. In fact, he says in John 10 verse 28, no one will snatch them out of my hand. No one's going to remove them from me. No one can take my kids away from me because we belong to him. He gives us his grace and his mercy because, listen to this, if you were to go back to Hebrews 4 verse 15 and 16, it says, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. And that he knows the emotions of this life. He knows the experiences of this life. From the loneliness and the frustration, from the sadness, the fear, the betrayal. He knows what it is to be lied about, to be slandered, to be falsely accused. He knows what it is to lose loved ones and to lose the protection. And because of that, Hebrews 4 verse 16 says, Therefore let us draw near with confidence, to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Oh, that's what he gives to us. We find grace to help in time of need because we can go to our God who is not only giving us his presence, but he gives us his provision. He brings everything that he is to bear on our life because he knows our frame. He's mindful that we are made out of dust. He's mindful that we are weak and that we have the, the, the limitations of humanity. And so that's why he tells us to trust and rest in him because of his provision for us. You don't need to turn to it now, but mark down Matthew six twenty-five and following where he tells us to look at the birds of the air that, that doesn't have a storehouse for food and just simply builds its nest. And look at the flower of the field that can't pick its setting. All it can do is just grow where it's planted. And yet, how much God provides for both the flower of the field and the bird of the air, and says, How much more does he care for us? We get his provision. So we have his presence, we have his provision. And then, third, takes us into the heart of this promise. We have his permanence. We have his permanence. This is not a promise for a season. Or a promise for a situation. It's not contingent upon circumstances. Only on bad days. It's a promise that's with us. We can confidently say. Look at verse 6. I'm sorry. Look at verse 5. Because he himself has said this. He himself has made this promise. He says I will never desert you. Nor will I ever forsake you. I want you to think about this for a second. Think about these two words. And contrast them. desert and forsake. Desert means, he says, I will never abandon you here and I walk away from you. If I'm going to desert you, I'm going to leave you here and I'm going to walk away from you. You stay, I leave. He says, I'll never do that to you. Nor will I ever forsake you. Forsake is I stay and you leave. Forsake is when I push you away. I shove you away from me. Get away from me. Every one of us in this room, to one degree or another, knows what that's like. Some of you are living with the scars of deserting somebody or forsaking somebody. Some of you are living with the scars of being deserted or being forsaken. You've had the people in your life that say they love you, then turn around and walk away from you. Or maybe in your past... You told someone you loved them and then turned around and walked away from them. We've all done this. This is part of the sinful human experience. This is part of the the brokenness of life, part of the the difficulties of living in a fallen world and being sinners and sinning against other people means sinned against, right? We know those words from human experience and relationships. But can I tell you something? None of us, not one of us, will ever know what it is to be deserted or forsaken by God. But Jesus does. Jesus does. Matthew 27, verse 46. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Think about this. On the cross, Jesus hung there crying out for an answer from his father and all he got was silence. All he got was silence because he's crying out to God saying, answer me. Why have you left me here and moved away from me? Why can't I come to you? Why this rip between us? Why this gap? Why have you turned your back on me? You say why? It's because of my sin. It's because of your sins. It's our sin. Because in that moment, he God made him who knew no sin, made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You see what happened in the moment on the cross? Is God forsook his son? Jesus, Jesus paying the penalty for my sin, giving me his righteousness so that you and I would never be forsaken or abandoned by God. Romans 5, 6, for while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. But God, in verse 8, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that, while, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Isn't that powerful to see? Now here we have a promise that God says, I'll never desert you or forsake you, but I did it to Jesus so that your sins will be forgiven. And therefore that promise is given to us. Those are the last words Christ cried from the cross. He said, it is finished, John nineteen thirty. It is finished. The mastery of sin over us has been broken. As Romans 6 says, those chains are shattered. The sting of death is destroyed. The payment for sin was made. He died and three days later rose from the grave so that we would never be forsaken or abandoned by God. So settled is this promise that the author here in verse 5 uses five consecutive negative words. It's no, 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 no. You ever have a a parental voice that wants to really make sure you get the point? I don't know if you had a parent that would tell you no, but I was one of those kids that required multiple experiences of that word. And when someone tells you no, 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 you get the point, right? Well, that's what he's doing. He's telling us this is never, ever, 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 ever going to happen. It's a permanence that we have from God, that he is with us unconditional love, unending, never dissipating, never diluted, never distracted, never expiring, never going to happen. And these words are so powerful. And if you're, I don't know if any of you are dyslexic like I am, but sometimes things get read forward and backwards. Well, read, just read the verse backwards. You desert or you forsake, never will I. You run from God, you forsake him, you abandon him. And you know what God says? Never will I. That's why you can run your whole life from God and he's not going to move. He'll be right there. Think about that dynamic of the promise. It's not just that he's never going to push you away. It's that you could push all you want. And you're never going to move God an inch. You can run from him to the furthest part of this world. And what's going to happen? Psalm 139. We already read it. He's there. You're not going to get away from him. You forsake Christ. You leave Christ. Never will I, he says. He says. Peter, in in one moment of courage, pledges to die defending Christ, and a few hours later forsakes him, not one time, but how many times? Three times. In the moment, and you need to catch this, it's in Luke chapter 22, verse 61. Just mark that down and go look at it sometime. In the moment of the third denial, Peter makes his statement and looks up and whatever the context was, across a courtyard, across a busy setting, however, it was positioned where Peter's making his denial on this side and Jesus is over here. Luke twenty-two sixty-one says that after he makes his third denial, he looks up and Peter and Jesus make eye contact. You know the moment when you catch the eye of the person you just sinned against? Have you done this? You said something you should not have said. You did something you should not have done. You are speeding and you catch the eye of the police officer. You know the guilt that shoots through your body when you know you've done wrong and you catch the eye of the person you've offended? That's what happens. Across that entire area, Peter makes the third denial, looks at Jesus, and it's a glance back from Jesus that, without saying a word, it's to say, You abandon or you forsake? Never will I. And Peter runs out in repentance and grief because he knows in the moment where he could have defended Christ, he abandoned Christ. But Christ was going to die on the cross for Peter. That's how powerful this is. We have a promise from God that nothing can separate us from him. Nothing can separate us from his love. Remember Romans 8? What will we say? If God is for us, then what? Who's against us? He did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also? How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God elect? God is the one who justifies. Who's the one who condemns? Jesus Christ is he who died. Yes, rather who is raised. Who's at the right hand of God? Who also intercedes for us? Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Verse 38 of Romans chapter 8 says, For I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate us from that permanent promise we have from God that he will never desert us or forsake us. Well, that takes us into the last one of God's protection. What happens when we know that it's God who gives us not only his presence and his provision and makes that permanent promise to us, but then what do we do with that? What results from that? Well, that's verse 6. Then we have confidence to say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? We get God's protection. I can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? It's fascinating because he doesn't say, If you really start believing this, Or you got to depend upon this. What he does right is he confidently says, tell this to yourself what he's telling us is sometimes your heart needs to be preached a sermon by your mind you've got to reinform you've got to reinform your emotions of something that you know is true even if in the moment you're buckling and you're breaking under the crushing pressures of things around you he says i've got to say that this is true i've got to believe this is true because it is true and i got to clear my vision so i can see what god's actually telling me here he says the lord is my helper I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Oh, you can slander. You can lie. You can mistreat me. You can betray me. And what do I do? I pray for you. I endure your treatment of me with kindness. I speak the truth to you. I find ways to show love for you. I mean, these are all superhuman things. It's not the instinct of our heart. But it's what Christ has taught us to do, not only by his example, but by his words, particularly Matthew 5. And so he says, I can confidently say the Lord is my helper. I've got supernatural help to conquer any human experience. God who knows where, when, and exactly how we need this help. It stabilizes us against the waves of trouble, protects us from supernatural slander, because you know that that's what Satan is in the business of. Brain to God false accusations against each of us, and God who knows the truth pays no attention to that, providing for our needs, giving us past to endure trials. This is why the psalmist could so calmly and confidently say, Psalm 46.10, cease striving and know that I am God. Cease striving. You can stop worrying, stop the anxiety, stop the fear, Because we have God who works for us. Psalm 56, three and four says, when I am afraid, I'll put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I've put my trust, I shall not be afraid. What can mere man do to me? It's not taunting what people and trying to incite action to people. It says, I trust in God. I trust in God who knows all things. I trust in God who holds judgment over everything. Isaiah twenty six three the steadfast of mind, you'll keep a perfect peace because he trusts in you. That there's a supernatural peace that can fill our hearts when we trust God because we know that he is in charge. Oh, and the reminder from Peter in 1 Peter 5 verse 7, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Lay all your burdens on him because he cares for you. Pill your head at night by emptying your mind of all the things that provoke anxiety, the unresolved issues, the questions we can't answer, the relationships we can't reconcile. Laying those things on God, knowing that he cares for us. He says, the Lord is my helper and I will not be afraid because I know his promise is with me. His presence is with me. His provision is with me and he is there never to rescind it. So why should we be free from the love of money? Because we have an unfailing promise that God is with us. I mean, this is the beautiful thing that God gives us in this verse. A promise to lock in our minds. What can man do? He can take my time, take my reputation, take my possessions. But he cannot take God from me. Cannot take my eternal home. Cannot take my eternal fellowship. Cannot take my joy because that's not anchored to what I have or what I lose or any possession on this earth. I'm reminded whenever I read this verse of the words of the hymn, How Firm a Foundation. Are you familiar with this? How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he has said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled. Fear not, I am with thee. Oh, be not dismayed, for I am thy God and will still give thee aid. I'll strengthen thee, help thee, and cause thee to stand, upheld by my righteous, omnipotent hand. When through the deep waters I call thee to go, the rivers of sorrow shall not overflow. For I will be with thee, thy trouble to bless, and sanctify to thee thy deepest distress. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, My grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee, I only design. Thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. And then the last verse. The soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to its foes. That soul though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no never, no never forsake. That's God's promise to us. He himself says, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you, so that we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? Can you say that promise with me this morning? Let's say it together. The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? Pray with me. Father, you made this promise to us and you spoke these words, committing to never forsake or desert us, knowing that Jesus was forsaken for our salvation. Lord, thank you for your love in that while we were yet sinners, you gave up your life for us that we can be called your children, your sons and daughters, that we can be forgiven of sin, we can be reconciled to you. And while there are the deep wounds, the scars, the, just the brutality of life that often forsakes and deserts us and the painful memories of the things that we have done to hurt others, may we be reminded, Lord, that you are always by our side a promise that we have that it enables us to take on the deepest and darkest challenges of this life, a comfort that exists alongside us with every wave of storm that passes over us, a peace, Lord, that's in our hearts because we know you not only understand the trials of life, but you are here with us, dwelling in us. And ultimately, Lord, we thank you for this promise because we know that one day we'll be with you face-to-face in a place that you have prepared for us. So we thank you and praise you.